Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longen. Footage of the death of George Floyd while being arrested by the Minneapolis Police Department has sparked outrage across the country. Large protests, and in some cases riots, are pushing for a variety of changes in our justice system. In order to have an educational discussion about these topics, we welcome Lawrence Ware, co-director of the Africana Studies Program and teaching assistant professor and diversity coordinator in the Department of Philosophy. He's also a writer and commentator for national outlets on race and politics. Like all of our podcasts, this episode is an open discussion for the purpose of education and should not be mistaken as OSU's institutional stance on race relations or any other topics discussed. We cover how Martin Luther King is often quoted out of context, whether the current movement is likely to lead to significant changes, and some of Ware's own experiences. Obviously, there are a lot of um, uh, racial issues in the news today, and for a lot of people who aren't out there fighting that fight every day, they're hearing a lot about it that they don't regularly. Are there things that you wish white people, and I don't know how else to put it, Mm-hmm. white people understood um, all the time? Yes. I mean, to be honest, we are in a moment where people are in the streets. There's a lot of discussion about white privilege. But to be honest, we've been here before. In fact, I just recently wrote something for the Stillwater newspaper. They asked me to kind of come back and do a thing I haven't written for them for a while, where I was letting them know that this is not new. We've been here Five years ago, I remember we were in Ferguson five years, five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, we were here with Terrence Crutcher a few years ago. I mean, this is something that continually keeps coming up. And so one of the things that I wish that white people who were listening to this and just new to the fight would understand is that this is by no means new. This is not a new discussion. Mm-hmm. This is not a new problem. This has been here for a very long time. It's been here since the inception of this country. It is, as many people have said, this country's original sin. And so I, I think it's important to understand that that while what what is happening now may be new because you have been kind of isolated in a bubble and not having to deal with it, whether you're it's because you're in Stillwater or because you're in Oklahoma or whatever that is, um, for Black people, this is a normal thing. So, for example, um, the first time that I had a gun pulled on me when I was a kid i was 16 years old driving through a town called valley brook and they pulled it on me because they said i was being sassy and i was wearing a do-rag um and that i fit the description of something it's happened since then i've been pulled over probably once every two months if i'm being generous i'm driving because i don't live in stillwater i live in oklahoma city so i drive back and forth for classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So that means that I'm constantly having interaction with the police officers. And most of the times they pull me over because they, they think I'm being suspicious or I look, I look like I fit the description or something. They check my stuff and they let me go. So it's not one of those things where I'm speeding. I, I don't drive recklessly. So what that should communicate to the person who's listening here is the fact that this is an ongoing thing. This is something that's been happening for a very long time. And as a black person, um, black man and black woman, I don't want to, you know, say that it only happens to black men, that this is something you just become accustomed to. This is, you just live with this. Uh, it is, it is the, you know, it is the price of the ticket, um, for living in this country, as James Baldwin once said. So by no means is this new, this is something that we have been dealing with for a very long time. Mm. 
Um, you mentioned uh, a minute ago that we've seen moments like this before where it looks like maybe things are going to change. Um, I've heard, I've been listening to, uh, watching a lot of news here recently, and a lot of people seem to think this is a turning point this time. Do you think it is? Do you think it's just too early to tell? My optimistic answer is maybe. <laughs> um, because honestly, there have been so many moments where things could change. I mean, going all the way back to the 60s. Now, we can go further mm -hmm. back than that. But going all the way back to the 60s, 1968, when King was assassinated and all these riots broke out across the country, that was a moment where things did change in a way because we had new policy and uh, that came out of that. But it led us to where we are now, where things are bad. I mean, so, I mean, maybe this is a moment where things could change. But, I mean, to be honest, this is a question that every time something like this happens, I get. Mm. I get the question with Ferguson. Is this a time where things could change? I got the question with Terrence uh, Crutcher. Is this a time where things could change? I got the question with Eric Gardner. Is this a time where things could change? Um, I got the question with Sandra Bland. Is, is this a time where things could change? I don't know. Um, my honest answer is probably not mm -hmm. um probably we're going to go through this cycle of outrage i mean this cycle of outrage does feel different because it's more widespread it feels like 1968 although i wasn't around 1968 but it feels like what 1968 must have felt like because it's very widespread it's the most widespread outrage outrage and protest since then um but do i sense that there's going to be any meaningful change to the structure of this country to the way that president donald trump makes his decisions no, mm. I don't. Have things changed in your lifetime? Do you feel like things are any better? Yeah, I do think that. Um, I, I think that there has been at least a little bit of discussion about representation, about trying to be more inclusive. Um, so when I was born in 1981, people were not very concerned at all about race and representation. And so um, at least that has changed. I, I would say that with universities, that's changed a great deal. Um, we're beginning to see some changes on that kind of level. But, but when it comes to the large scale kind of changes that we kind of need for things to get better, I haven't seen a great deal of movement on that, but I will say without, without question, I mean, just the fact that you're willing to have this conversation with me um, is proof to me that things have changed. And so I, I'm grateful for that. Hmm. A minute ago when you were talking about getting pulled over um, and you just mentioned you were born in 81, I was also born in 81. Uh, I can't remember the last time I got pulled over. Um, you can't remember it? I, I honestly, I, wow. it's, been, it's been so long. I, I don't remember the last time I got pulled over. You must um, be a very, you must be a very safe driver, sir. I, well, <laughs> I, 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 I am, and I live in Stillwater, and I don't travel mm. all that much. So I'm not okay. on my way that much. However, um, as I mentioned in a couple emails uh, to you leading up to this interview, obviously you and I have had some different experiences. We definitely um, have. And part of that is white privilege. Um, so, for people who may not know that term or may not understand it the way you do, mm -hmm. what would you say white privilege is? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I do an entire presentation on this, so it's very complex. But to put it in a nutshell, what white privilege is, is the privilege that a white person is given by sheer 
nature of the fact that they are living in a white body and that it comes with it some kind of privileges. So for example, you, even though you don't do a lot of, a lot of traveling, uh, you can be pretty confident that unless you're being really reckless, that you can travel from Oklahoma City to Stillwater and back mm-hmm. without any kind of interaction with the police that could end with your death. Mm-hmm. With me, I travel back and forth from Oklahoma City to Stillwater and back. Um, I, I can't be confident of that. That's an example of white privilege. Uh, another example of white privilege that I talk about in, in my philosophy of race class is that you, as a white person, can be pretty confident that when you go to the movies, that you're not going to see any stereotypes that negatively portray you, right? Mm. So you're not going to see any stereotypes where people are going to be very stereotypical um, and it relates to your race. Me, as a Black person, I cannot be confident of that. Those are examples of white privilege. And that by no means encapsulates the totality of white privilege, but that's an example kind of get you thinking about what that is. Mm. There are protests going on. There are also, there, some are turning into riots. Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are on protests becoming riots, because most people will say, well, once you start rioting, it's counterproductive. I would actually say that rioting is why we're having the conversations. I mean, mm-hmm. now, I'm going to say this. Uh, first of all, the when you look at the makeup of the people who are protesting, it is by no means all Black people. I mean, mm-hmm. you have people of a white race, people who are Hispanic, people who are Asian. Everybody is represented when it comes to the, to the um, protest. And to be honest, what I've seen is a great deal more white people protesting than black people. I think that a lot of black people um, may feel the need to protest once or twice, but they're so tired. We've been fighting this fight mm-hmm. for a very long time. I have a very strong sense that the people that I'm talking to who are in my community, we are tired of this. You know, we go, we protest, and it's, just, it's become tiring. Mm-hmm. And so I'm seeing a lot of a lot more diversity in those protests. I'm happy to see that. Now, King has been MLK mm-hmm. has been deeply misused by so many people mm-hmm. that they don't take into consideration the context of the stuff that he's saying. Now, King would never have rioted. That's not mm-hmm. what he does. M- Malcolm X would never have rioted. That wasn't what he did either. Like rioting is not part of what they did. But one thing they did understand is that if people are frustrated for long enough and are not listened to for long enough, then they will resort to riots because that's the only way that their voices are going to be heard. Mm. Peaceful protest is good. Those are the things that I do, that I encourage people to do. But I absolutely understand why people who have not been listened to turn to riots and turn well the looting thing is different but turn to riots because rioting is as king has said the voice of the unheard it's 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 people who are so frustrated that nothing is going on that they need to happen right that they turn to that as a means to try to express what they want to happen and i would argue that that the reason why we in this country are having the conversation that we've had because we've had peaceful protests for generations Mm -hmm. we've had a number of protests for years and what usually happens is those things are covered on the nightly news for 10 15 minutes at most right the reason why we're having the long-standing conversation about this is yes the peaceful protest on one hand 
yes, the recording on the other hand, but also the fact that people have resorted to rioting. Mm-hmm. That has forced people to come to terms with just how angry people are. So I'm not a person who's ever going to say that rioting is okay. I don't think it's okay. But do I understand why they're rioting? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. If I were younger, if I were in my 20s, I mean, I'm just in my 30s, but if, if I were in my 20s or something like that, if I was young and dumb and didn't have a career and didn't have a family to take care of, I would absolutely be probably thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So I understand uh, why they're rioting, even why I, as an older, I mean, you know, I guess I'm kind of elder. I got gray in my beard. I mean, you know, as an older person, I can say to them, that's not the right way to do it. You shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I completely understand why people are so upset that they're rioting in the streets. This may be too, uh, the answer may be too long for what we have time for here, but I'm curious what you just said a minute ago about people misusing Martin Luther King and kind of Mm -hmm. not in the context of his times. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain that a little more? Well, see, what people like to do is, I mean, it's it's a number of of points here on this one. So King is a person whose thought, I teach a a class on King, King and X, I teach a class on that. And one of the things that I kind of, really try to hit hard in class is how King and X both are people who change over time. Hmm. So King, when you meet him, when most people meet him at the, I have a dream speech is a different King that you meet when he's close to his death Hmm. and he's fallen out of popularity in America because he's gotten more radical. Mm -hmm. Right. And so one of the things that people love to do, they love to take a quote from King and say, yo, this is what King would think about this. And don't take into account that King might at the end of his life have disavowed thinking like this. So, for example, Mm -hmm. King is talking about wanting to live, you know, and hold hands with white people and be kumbaya. Whereas towards the end of his life, he said, yo, I may have integrated my people into a burning house, meaning that he's very suspicious of white people's ability to change. He does not necessarily think that his I Have a Dream speech really captured what needed to happen in this country. That's what I mean by people taking King out of out of context, misusing him, and not taking into account that this is a guy who changes. Mm-hmm. And so the reason why most people are quoting King from the I Have a Dream speech and quoting the letter from Birmingham jails, because that's early King. That's the Mm -hmm. king that's optimistic, who thinks that things can change, who thinks that things are are going to get better. Most people, the only thing that they may quote from King's later half is the, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and all kind of stuff. Because later on, King is very cynical. Mm -hmm. And King is not as optimistic about racial change as he was earlier in his life. And maybe that's just a representation of a person when you're young, you're dumb, you're happy, you you know, you think everything can change. And maybe you just come to terms with the fact that things may not change. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what King is coming to terms with later on in his life. And immediately after his assassination, you begin to see that things are not good in the black community because people are rioting. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are the most widespread riots that we've seen, um, you know, really since now uh you know that's that's when people are really really angry so it's it's important for us to understand that to 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 use queen king accurately you have to use him in the historical context in which you find him Mm. okay that's a a nutshell answer to your question yeah well that's a good answer thank you Uh, we were talking about protests a minute ago um large groups of people uh around each other at a time when we're being told 
stay in your house. You should stay six feet away Man. from people. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't need a, uh, well, I'm just curious your thoughts on uh, the timing here of this is a time where in a lot of cases, people are having to make a choice. Like, am yeah. I willing to go risk it yeah. to speak, to uh, stand up for what I believe in yeah, right man. now? That's, that's, that's the, that's what terrifies me quite honestly, because these protests are coming at a time where we should stay away from each other. Mm -hmm. And when I look at these protests, I'm seeing these protests happening and I see some people wearing masks, but I do not see the, the level of mask wearing that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And so that terrifies me because not only is this happening in the in, in the context of these police killings or just killings in, in uh, you know in the case of Ahmed Aubrey of, of black people by people who are of questionable racial identity and ideas but covid-19 is ravishing the black community man mm -hmm. i mean it is hitting the black community hard a, a number that i heard recently that there've been 23,000 deaths in the black community because of COVID-19. I don't know if that's accurate. I mean, it came from CNN, so it probably is. But the thing is, is that we've had how many deaths? About 100,000 or so mm -hmm. in, in the country. And so that means that a quarter of that is hitting the black community. That's a, that's, that's a large number. And so I'm very concerned about what we're going to see in the week's following these protests because people are so close together they're so packed in their tight you can be asymptomatic and still carry the virus i'm very concerned about that and so that's the reason why i have been very hesitant uh to go to any kind of protest mm -hmm. um because i'm very concerned about um covid19 about contracting covid19 i don't think i have it i mean but I'm very concerned about that. And so one of the things that I have been really, really worried about is how this is going to shake out, you know, in the weeks to follow, because I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that we're dealing with the pandemic and people are being very, very, very close together. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that, I, I don't know what's going to happen because of that. So, so, so that's something that very, very concerns me. In fact, I just saw that the uh, OSU football player yeah. went to a protest on, on, over the weekend, and now he has COVID-19. Now, I don't know if that happened while he was at the protest. I don't know if he had it beforehand. I'm guessing he did that beforehand. But either way, if he got it from the protest, that came from the protest. If he didn't get it from the protest, he was at the protest while he had it. Yeah. That concerns me. That's very concerning. And so I'm very concerned about what's going to happen moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned football. Um, I can't mm. help but bring up Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people um, in the white community um, are seeing him differently now or maybe hearing what he had to say a little more now. Do you, do you think that's the case? Judging by Drew Brees, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but there, there was also a big reaction to what Brees said. It was a reaction, but, but judging – but I don't believe – for a second that Drew Brees believes anything that he said to retract what he said. Mm. Hey, okay, here's what, I, here's what I think. I think that when Colin Kaepernick did what he did, it was so offensive to white sensibilities about the nature of America that they reacted so angrily mm. to him. And there was all this discussion. Drew Brees just had this discussion. 
my grandfather fought in World War II and my grandfather did this. And one thing they, they failed to realize, I too had a grandfather who fought in World yeah. War II. Mm. He came back and was treated horribly by this country, wasn't able to take advantage of the GI Bill. And, <laughs> you know, his experience of being in World War II was not a good experience. Mm. Same thing with my, with my uncle who fought in Vietnam terrible experiences same thing with my great-grandparents well, not my great-grandparents but my great-great-grandparents that mm. fought in in, in in other wars i think it was world war one for them um i have a, a long history of family that fought in the united states military and have been treated horribly by the military and by people when they come back because of the color of their skin mm -hmm. so that kind of communicates this kind of this kind of divide in how people feel about this country racially and one of the things that I think Colin Kaepernick has always done well is he actually respected the flag. At first, he was sitting down. Now, that would have been disrespectful. Then he kneeled, right? The kneeling was not disrespectful at all. But people were so offended by that, white people were so offended by that, that they reacted so vociferously. Well, the reality is that what he was trying to express has been something that's been around for a very long time. And now we're beginning to realize it hasn't gone anywhere. It isn't going anywhere. And maybe they're kind of coming around to it. But I strongly believe there's a strong contingent of people who are like Drew Brees. I don't believe for a second that his apology is, is genuine. Mm. That man has played in probably one of the blackest cities. I mean, Atlanta, I would argue, is a little bit blacker. But mm. that man has played in one of the blackest cities with black teammates for all this time, and he comes out and he says that, that lets you know that man ain't changing. Mm. So I don't believe his, re, you know, his, his apology at all. Now, his outrage, the outrage to his comments came mostly from black folks. Mm. Um, but I mean, I do think that maybe some people are changing their minds. Um, but, you know, if OSU football players were to kneel during the national anthem, in Stillwater, mm. Oklahoma, what do you think their reaction is going to be? You know, is it going to be support now? Is, mm -hmm. is it going to be, you know, oh, you know, they got the right, the First Amendment right to voice their concerns? Or is it going to be, yo, get those people? You know, I, I know better. I know better. Barack Obama was elected president. We heard in the aftermath of that, oh, we're living in a post-racial society now. I think most people would say clearly that's not the case. Um, but I'm curious your thoughts on uh, how that has changed America, how things have changed. We did have a black president for two terms, actually. Um, that was a step forward as far as equality. But, but did it lead to improvements? No, it didn't. I mean, it was a step forward. Um, Without question, having Barack Obama in the White House was a step forward. It kind of brought a lot of people who were mainstream, liberal, close to liberal white folks, um, a little bit closer to racial ideas about justice. Um, a lot of Republicans probably kind of got swept up in that as well. Um, and so, yes, there was progress by that. But there has always been a number of black folks who were critical of Barack Obama. Mm. And while Barack Obama was in office, yes, he did some things to address racism, 
uh, head on. And I think he did a wonderful job on some things, but there were always black folks. Cornel West was one of them. And he got a lot of backlash when he was critical of Barack Obama um, that were like, wait a minute, you're not saying enough. You're not going far enough. Like you have this platform in your second term in particular, you're not running again. You need to go further uh, on some of these things. And then I think it's also important for us to remember that the Black Lives Matter movement got its genesis under Barack Obama. Right? That's something that happened in his presidency. And there was all kinds of criticism about police violence in that time under his presidency. So yes, there was progress. After his presidency, we went way backwards when it came to racial justice because of who took office. So while there was progress to be sure, we went backwards in a lot of different ways after his presidency. There was this, what, what I think it was Van Jones who said this, there was this white lash, right? Mm -hmm. Like kind of a backlash. There was this white lash to President Barack Obama. There was all this anger that was simmering for a very long time with President Barack Obama that was just unleashed after his presidency. And so, um, yes, I mean, we made steps forward, but we've gone back in a lot of ways since that time. And so it's very difficult to have any kind of discussion about the legacy of Barack Obama without any kind of discussion about the legacy, about what happened to his legacy after he left the office. We went backwards. We just did. And so now we're coming to terms with the fact that not only have we gone backwards, but we're seeing the ramifications of going backwards. For a couple of years there, um, there were not very many recordings of Black people getting killed. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, just this year, we've had, what, three, right? I mean, it, it's back now. And so it's one of those things where, yes, we've moved forward, but we've been pushed back. And there's this kind of dance is happening where we're trying to move forward and we're trying to have progress, but we constantly being, uh, we are constantly being pushed back as we're trying to move forward. So it's, it's a very difficult kind of, kind of situation that we find ourselves in politically. Mm. And you um, several times here have referenced Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I think for a lot of people, um, they, don't, they don't know a lot about the group. Mm -hmm. um, could you just sort of uh, quickly explain what that's about if, if, people just, if people don't really know what the group is about? Well, um, Black Lives Matter was founded by three Black women in response to the death of Trayvon Martin, I believe it was. What, what one of them said on social media was Black Lives Matter, you know, just flippantly saying it. And that was so impactful that they began to realize they need to kind of organize around mm -hmm. it. And so what Black Lives Matter is now is a decentralized, meaning there is no head, mm -hmm. right? So with the SCLC with King, there was a head with um, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam, although I, he was dispelled from the Nation of Islam. There's a head, right? It's now Louis Farrakhan. Um, historically, Black movements, SNCC, whatever, have had heads, singular people who are at the head of the organization that give leadership to everyone else. And they are the spokesperson for the organization, all the kind of stuff. All the stuff goes through the head in those organizations. What Black Lives Matter does is they decentralize leadership. And so now the leadership is diverse. 
right? So there's a chapter in Oklahoma City that there's a head of. There's a chapter in Minneapolis that there's a head of. There's a chapter in Dallas and Houston, all the kind of places. Now, what I do is I sit on a board that gives advice to them, but I don't give them leadership, right? Mm -hmm. I say to them, these things are happening and these are the ways that, you know, they impact you, blah, blah, blah. But, but they make decisions about what they want to do individually because one of the things that Black Lives Matter has always understood is that while police violence is something that we all deal with, it is unique to different communities. And so the issues that Oklahoma City faces are gonna be different than the issues faced in Tulsa, they're gonna be different than the issues faced in Minneapolis, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a decentralized organization that, that gives leadership and resistance to um, black people in particular, but anyone can join uh, and, and does these organizations, does these protests, does these pushbacks to police violence. And so that's essentially what it is. Um, but it's a little bit more than that. I mean, there's also this policy arm to it where they're doing research about the, the amount of police violence that's happening, you know, how to interact with, with, with the media. But, but at its core, what Black Lives Matter is, is an organization that does pushback when it comes to police violence. Mm -hmm. And they're now expanding their discussion to things like uh, you know, violence against trans people. They're expanding their discussion about things, you know, about education. So, so, so it, it, you know, it started in response to police violence, but it's now expanding to other kind of things they're trying to address. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know I've seen uh, online, I've seen some uh, debates where somebody says Black Lives Matter and somebody else all says lives matter. All Lives Matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, the other than the laugh, do you do you want to say anything about that? There's there is this tension between all lives matter and Black Lives Matter, but the reality is, w when you look at the history of this country and the people who are being killed, they're killing black people, mm -hmm. and historically, culturally, and this is another thing that I do. Um, I'm a culture writer for the New York Times. Culturally. When you look at, at who is represented culturally, Black people have always been represented in horror movies and action movies and dramas as people who are the friends of white people, but not someone worthy of their own story. Now, that's changing. Mm. But, but, but culturally, there's always been this kind of peripheral image of Black people as the add-ons to the story, but not the center of the story. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is important for us, look, yeah, all lives matter, fine, whatever. If you wanna say that, it's cool. However, black lives have not been treated as though they've mattered mm -hmm. since the beginning of this country. And so until we're at a point where black people are treated as though they matter, then I'm not trying to hear anyone say anything about all lives matter. Mm -hmm. I definitely don't wanna hear about blue lives matter, I don't want to hear about Green Lives Matter, Polka Dot Lives Matter. I don't want to hear about none of that. And so we have come to a place in this country where we have sufficiently articulated both in the way that we live, in the policies that we that we pass, in the movies that we in movies and television that we consume, have put in the center that Black Lives Do Matter. We mm -hmm. haven't done that, and so I'm not trying to hear anything else about it. You're a parent, mm -hmm. right? I'm also a parent. Um, again, our children are having different experiences. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I know um, I've heard a lot of talk recently and really kind of over the, my lifetime about the types of communications black parents have with their children about what it's like to grow up black in America mm-hmm. um, and how to, how to react to police officers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I would suspect you've laid some groundwork with your kids that I never felt like I had to with mine. Yes, I have. So I'm raising black boys. And um, one of my sons came home from daycare, I believe it may have been preschool, but came home from daycare and was very upset. And I was asking him, why are you so upset? And I'm going to use an incendiary term. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, why was he so upset? And he said that he was called, I can probably get away with this. He was called the N-word at school. Mm -hmm. That's an experience that I feel as though probably white parents don't have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, I mean, there's stuff that kids can probably say to white kids that are that's offensive, but but nothing like that. And I had to sit him down and have this kind of conversation with him about about the word, about that, and and that led to a conversation um, about the police because one of the things that I had to be taught. So as I said earlier, I was pulled over in Valley Brook, it's a small town south of Oklahoma City. Well, I mean, it's not south of Oklahoma City. It's a small town in Oklahoma City. It doesn't matter. It's on the south side. I was pulled over in Valley Brook. And one of the reasons why I was pulled over is because I was wearing a do-rag. Mm-hmm. And a do-rag is this thing you wear in your head, you know. I was trying to get waves. I got no hair now. But I was trying to get I was trying to get waves, you know, I was trying to be slick, I was trying to be cool. Um <laughs> And I was wearing a do-rag. I, the hat that I had is up there. I was wearing a do-rag and a hat. I, was, I mean, I was, I was G, man. I was trying to be cool, bro. And I got pulled over because of it. And my mother had already told me before that happened, you don't need to be going out of this house. And I didn't listen to her. Mm-hmm. But she said to me, you don't need to be going out of this house wearing a do-rag. You look like a thug. Mm-hmm. And she wouldn't say thug now because it has racial connotations, but she, but she was trying to express to me that you as a black man can't just be wearing whatever you want to wear out in the streets. That's, that's Trayvon Martin in the hoodie, right? It's a Trayvon Martin in the hoodie. Exactly. I still wear hoodies though, <laughs> but, but she was trying to express to me, you know, like I've gotten out of wearing, I used to, man, I used to wear, I used to sag my pants. I used to wear hats. Um, like flat brims. I used to wear do-rags. Well, I don't need it anymore, though. <laughs> I used to wear hoodies. I still wear hoodies, though. But but there are so many things that I have just chosen not to wear because wearing them puts my life at risk. Mm-hmm. I just can't wear those things. Now, I continue to be who I am. I still wear my Jordans. You probably see it behind me. I still wear my Jordans. Mm-hmm. I still wear, you know, stuff that is authentically Black and, and who I am. But there are certain things that I can't wear I don't think comfortably anymore and in, 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 in interact with the police. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to express to my son, there are certain things that you need to be mindful of. Mm-hmm. That your friends who are white don't have to be mindful of. And, and my son was going to a private, mostly white, probably 90% white school. And he's not going to that school anymore. Mm-hmm. Because he needs to be around people who come from his background, who have similar kind of experiences. And also, just quite frankly, the school was a little racist and wasn't willing to kind of 
change how mm. they were kind of doing the things that they were doing. But, but I, I constantly have to tell him, he's 12 now, be aware of your surroundings, be aware of how you dress. When you come, now he's never had any interaction with the police before. I've kept him away from that, mm. um, thankfully. Um, but I have communicated to him that when you interact with the police, you need to be careful how you carry yourself, be careful with your hand movements. If you're ever pulled over, he doesn't drive, of course, but if you are pulled over, one of the things that I've, I've constantly said to him, hold your hands there until they get there and tell them I'm reaching behind my back to get my wallet out. Don't just do things because you don't know who you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. That's something that I imagine white parents don't have to worry about. Yeah. But as a black parent, you are consciously aware of that and if you're a conservative black parent if you're a liberal black parent if you're a progressive black parent if you're a radical black parent right it doesn't matter your experience whatsoever that's a conversation you have to have with your kids mm. and that's a conversation that goes all the way back to the 60s the 50s the 40s because that is something that we've always had to deal with that's 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 the of the byproduct of living in this country is the the need to have those kinds of conversations. So I absolutely, you know, had that conversation with him and I expect when he gets older and he has kids, if he wants them, uh, he'll have those conversations with his kids as well. Mm -hmm. I don't expect it to change anytime soon whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, by the way, I wear hoodies all the time and mm -hmm. never give it a second thought. Mm -hmm. Never, never needed to. It was never a I, reason. I, I'm constantly aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, when I'm teaching, I, I've, like the first week of teaching, I, I wear my suit jacket and to kind of establish myself as an authority. But then when I get comfortable with the class, I go back to my hoodies and whatnot. But I'm always aware that if I'm going to a bank, I take the hoodie off. If I'm going to interact with the police in any kind of meaningful kind of way, I take the hoodie off. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm going to do anything, if I go to Edmond, if I'm going into Edmond, like not, not on the interstate, but I'm going into the Edmond you know, city, take the hoodie off. I'm aware of that. And that's just second nature to me. I don't even think about it nowadays. I, I'm just aware of the fact that if I'm, if I'm going to, the, to have these kind of interactions, I need to be aware of how I'm dressed. Mm. Well, I suspect among our listeners, we've got a lot of people who would say that they're not racist, hmm. um, but have not really been in this fight mm -hmm. up till this point anyway. Mm -hmm. What can they do to help? How can they be productive right now? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are bail funds you can donate to. I mean, you know, I, I, I have this uncomfortable relationship with, with people who want to give money and feel like they've done something. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, donate to the bail funds, uh, help get people out of jail. Um, that would have been me years ago in jail, needing someone to help me get out. Well, probably not. My mom, I was, I come from a little bit of a fluent family, but, but um, not that affluent, but a little bit of affluent. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, there are people who are in jail who need help getting out. Um, do that. But, but really, the most important thing that I think that people need to do is number one, read, um, find books that address this issue. Stamped from the beginning is a good one. Um, stamped racism, anti racism in me is a, is a, is a shorter one, a more accessible one. Um, learn about what's happening, right? Understand that this is not new, but learn about it. Um, get yourself enmeshed in black media. Go to The Root, um, Very Smart Brothers, which is a, a subs subsidiary of The Root, publishes things on these things. Learn, but here's the most important point. The two things that I think that people need to do. 
number one, listen, mm. right? Before you retort with all lives matter to black lives matter, listen to what these people are trying to say to you. Mm -hmm. They're trying to communicate. I wrote this in the Stewart newspaper that Spike Lee has been trying to say this. Uh, John Singleton has been trying to say this. W.B. Du Bois has been trying to say this. James Baldwin has been trying to say this. Ida B. Wells have been trying to say this stuff. What we're saying is by no means new, which is part of the reason why so many black people are tired, mm. is because we've been trying to say this to you for centuries. So listen, listen to us, right? Listen to what we're trying to tell you. Uh, do what you're doing right now. Just listen, man. Mm -hmm. like, just, just listen to what we have to say, right? The second thing that is important, and this is a harder one, because it requires courage, mm. is to speak up when your friends or family member say or do something racist. Mm -hmm. Because I've taught <laughs> in Stillwater long <laughs> enough to understand that my students come to me all the time and say to me, my grandparents, you know, they said something racist and we just didn't say them because we, you know, that's just how they are. Mm -hmm. It is important to not let that slide anymore. You can't do it. It is important that if you're going to be an ally, if you're going to do something about it, do something, mm -hmm. right? You know, have the courage to say to your family member, that's not okay. Let's talk about why you feel that way. Let's talk about why that's wrong. Let's, let's start this discussion. Mm. White family member, whether it be grandparent, cousin, uncle, brother, because, you know, in small towns, it gets dicey, you know? Um, and so it's important for us to, it's important for white people to, to do two main things that require no money. Listen, learn, and also speak up when you know that someone's doing something that they should not be doing. Mm. I'd like to thank Lawrence for joining me for this episode. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there is no T in Pokes Podcasts. And with that, we'll close with our sign-off question, how are the arts and sciences making the world a better place? I'm a philosopher. Uh, and so I think that philosophy in particular sharpens our mind, helps us to communicate better, which is something that is very needed when it comes to racial um, discussions. We need to have sharp minds. We need to be able to be very thoughtful in how we communicate. So arts and sciences helps us when it comes to our thinking. It helps us to think better. It helps us to communicate better. And honestly, I mean, is it music in arts and science? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love music, man. I'm, I, man, Prince. Let's go. Absolutely. So I think that arts and sciences makes things better um, because it makes us be better in the way that we communicate, whether it be musically, whether it be written word, whether it be communications by public speaking. It helps us to commun communicate better. It helps us to think better. Mm -hmm.